It's a pleasure to worship with you this morning. I hope that you're doing well. If we have not met, my name's Peter, and I welcome you this morning to St. Andrew's. So glad that you're here. We are in what's called the third Sunday of Epiphany. And you may know that what Epiphany is, is a way of expressing when you see something in a totally new way. And it's really talking about the season that comes after Christmas, this encounter with Jesus that helps us to see things in a totally new way. And so we're going through looking at stories, gospel stories, that help us to understand who Jesus is and what he's about. And we have a a great story this morning that I want to invite you to uh, join along, whether you read on the screen or your pew Bible. Um, it's going to be in John chapter 2. I'll read the story and then we'll pray together. It says this, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed the glory, and through his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, so that we might know better who you are, that it might illumine our spirits and help us and give us a courage and strength and knowledge of what you have done um, and how that changes everything for how we can see ourselves, for how we can see each other, and for how we can understand what we're doing here together at church. And so I pray now, Lord, for your spirit to be amongst us, to be felt and known and understood so that we might come to know you and what you are doing in us. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. 
One of the really fun things about the Gospel of John is that you see as you read through it that there are actually seven signs that John specifically selects. He curates seven signs that are for a very specific purpose. Uh, Signs are an interesting thing, right? In my household, my son is seven years old. His name's Remy. He's learning how to read, and so now he can read the signs. And one of the signs that he knows how to read now is the speed limit sign. And so mom taught him also how to read the speedometer. And so he looks at the speed limit sign and he looks at the speedometer sign. And if things aren't where they should be, he lets us know almost immediately. Uh, And he's a rule follower. I don't know where he gets it from, but certainly not for me. Yeah, grandma wants to take credit for that. (laughs) But signs point to something, right? They're not the thing. They point to something greater, something beyond. And this is true for our story this morning, that uh, this miracle that Jesus performs is described as a sign because it's pointing to something greater. It's pointing to something that John wants us to know about Jesus. And we know that because much later on in the gospel, John writes this in chapter 20. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so John selected this story that we just read so that we can have life in his name, in the name of Jesus, so that we can find our life in the life of Jesus. And this is a sign. It's a sign to us. I hope it's a good sign to you of what Jesus is really like. And what Jesus makes possible. And I love this promise of Scripture that John gives us that if you really want to know what your life is meant to be about and what it's meant to be for, then it's found somehow in this story that happened over 2,000 years ago and has been recorded so that you might know also what true life is all about. And what a proposition, what a thing that John is presenting to us and saying, if you would, if you would really think on this story, and it's a story worth thinking on because there's so many dimensions and layers to it, and we're only going to be able to cover some this morning. But even if you think about it in new times in your life, in new circumstances, it brings out different parts of the story that are so important for how we would think about our circumstance, and how we can best live. And so let's dive in a little bit to some of what our story is trying to say. The context of the story we know, right? It's a wedding feast, but the drama in the story is really that this bride and groom are headed towards embarrassment. So we're looking at a wedding feast where 
the couple is about to be totally socially embarrassed. And so Mary, the mother of Jesus, sees it coming. She sees the wine running low, and this is not like a wedding where we would have or be maybe one afternoon out of the day, but multiple days and, and multiple customs here that necessitate that the party would continue for some time. And so Mary sees that somehow there was a miscalculation and the party is going to come to an abrupt and embarrassing end unless there's something that Jesus can do. And there really is a lot of tension at any wedding, right? It's almost as if we put, typically it's poor young people who are in love, but are still getting to know each other through this great test. You know, a test of logistics, a test of planning. We say to them, oh, great, you're in love, throw us a party. Right? And do all the planning and send out all the invitations and navigate through all of your family dynamics. And it's almost as if we're putting them in a situation, if you want to put together a great party with so many moving pieces, that there's inevitably something here or there that won't feel controllable and could cause embarrassment. Well, obviously this has happened for this couple. They, they just didn't get all the logistics that they needed to. I can still remember, I have a visual a picture in my mind of walking into a wedding banquet when I was 15 years old and none of the tables were set up yet. And even at 15, even though I was as checked out as I could possibly be checked out, I knew that that was not good. <laughs> and see, what had happened is, is that uh, my uncle married this wonderful Hispanic woman and the white side of the family shows up on time when the invitation says. But the Hispanic family, they might show up an hour and two hours later. And so when we showed up, none of the tables were set up. And so what did we do? We got to work. We started putting the tables together. And guess what? There was a party anyways. And that's when I first learned how to pour a keg beer, even though I didn't drink any. I had to learn how to be a host at a party just to keep things uh, going for this wedding. But weddings are these, these moments, these moments where uh, we know it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. It's a symbol. It, it's, it's a symbol of what it takes to be married, right? And we might turn to any married couple who is experiencing a little tension, a little embarrassment on the day of their wedding, even though also a lot of joy, typically, is that's what it is. It's a mix of these two things. And, and embarrassment is just part of being married, right? Even on my 10-year anniversary, when I was supposed to be on a nice, relaxing vacation up in Big Sur, that's usually when it sneaks up on you, right? And all of a sudden, we're going to this beautiful place. But to get to this beautiful place, I had to face a fear I had not faced in a long time, which was driving along these big canyon cliffs off it, where you're looking basically down to your death if you fall off these narrow canyons. And, and there's this beautiful uh, 
beach everywhere you look, and so you want to be looking at this beautiful beach, but you're also just filled with terror, or at least I am, because that's not my thing. And so my wife is looking at me like, who is this guy? Who is this freaked out husband? I've never seen him quite so terrified, and you know, there might have been some tears, but it's okay, because the tears have been seen before, um, and there always seems to be a new way. The tears will, and the embarrassment is part of what it means to be in relationship like that. And in a way, that's what makes it beautiful and full of joy. And in a way, that's also what makes it so challenging and something that you will always continuously work on and never quite finish. Right? Because we share things, Katie and I share things that only we know about each other, and so it's very intimate, um, and, and yet we continue to be in relationship, and so there's a lot of grace there, but also we know that no matter how hard we try and put the work in, that there's always going to be some new angle and some new dimension that'll catch us in a bad moment, catch us when we're not our best selves, and so We'll have to learn again how to ask for forgiveness, to be seen uh, in a way we don't want to be seen, to be known in a way we don't want to be known, um, and we have to trust in our relationship that we will still be able to, at the end of the day, see each other as our best selves. And marriage is designed to draw that out, to, to continue that work to make that work something that is actually a symbol of something much greater. We see it all the way back at the very beginning in the book of Genesis with this very first married couple, Adam and Eve. And as they're working it out, as, as God is trying to marry heaven and earth, he's using this married couple. And as they go along, with Jesus in the garden one day, it all falls apart in total embarrassment to the point where they try and hide in their shame because they're so ashamed that it didn't go the way that it was supposed to go and all the things that they had lost by desiring their own desires instead of what God would want for them. And so we see the grand picture here. We see this big unfolding reality that in a way the context we live in is as if we are the bride on the brink of embarrassment. And of course, this is what Jesus calls the church ultimately, is his bride. And we see here what Jesus is willing to do for his bride, right? Anyone standing right now in any kind of relationship, anybody who's trying to work out uh, how to be, how to lead, how to take responsibility, how to be in community right now, I think we can all just pause for a moment and realize that this calling upon the church, if you're walking out your faith, is going to cause you, like Peter, at times to be totally embarrassed. You know, like when 
Jesus is walking on the water, and Peter says, I could do that. Can I come to you? And all the disciples are in the boat going, ooh, this is not going to work out well. (laughs) Getting ready for that cringe moment, knowing that what Peter wants to do and what he's able to do, what he's called out to do and what he is able to do are different. And so it's a cause for humiliation. And that's what Jesus does. He calls us out to learn this new way. And sometimes we have to stumble and fall in order to actually know how to do it well and to learn to actually walk the path. And one thing that will prevent us from doing that is this sense by which I can't do anything where I would ever make a mistake, where things might not go the way that I want them to go where I might not be my best self. And we can add the pressure cooker of the moment we're in, a moment where things are difficult and to walk down the narrow path is, is challenging, full of all kinds of uh, like different uh, roadblocks along the way that are just trying to get us off the path. And so... If you're in a moment like that, if you're feeling this way at all, I think what we can see in the story is that while all that's going on, while all that social embarrassment is going on, that Mary turns to Jesus and says, are you going to do something about that? And they have a little bit of a back and forth. But then you see Mary's quiet confidence in Jesus And she says to the servants, do whatever he says. Do whatever he says. So Jesus shows these servants some water jars. And these water jars are used for ritual purification. And I just want to draw out one element here in the context. These these water jars uh, would have been there because where they were was a place where there were what's known as mikvahs. These are like baptismals that a practicing Jew would get in multiple times a week. And an observant Jew would get in this pool of water, this special blessed water, and they would go down and they would, they would go under the water and up from the water seven times And they would pray rote prayers. And those rote prayers were designed for them to ultimately, after doing this ritual, to come out and be clean. Well, they would do that for a while, and then they would need to do it again. And they'd be in this endless ritual, still practiced today by Orthodox Jews, that they were constantly trying to cleanse themselves. And so Jesus specifically chooses these jars these jars that needed a lot of water to fill tubs. And, and he tells these servants to go and fill them up. And you can see why Mary says, just do whatever he says, because this would have been a lot of work for the servants. They would have had to go to a well and fill up gallons, I think 150 gallons of water and bring it back. And so they must have thought, wow, Jesus really wants to be ritually pure. You know, that's why he's doing this, is he wants a lot of water so he can do the mikvah during a wedding. Seems a little strange, but okay. 
we know what happens in the story, right? That what ends up happening is they're willing to fill these, uh, these uh, jars up to full. And so somebody goes and gets an empty wine glass, one of the servants, and goes and scoops up some of that water and walks over to the host of ceremonies. And somehow between when they scooped it up and when they get to the host of ceremonies, that water turned into wine. And then we discover that it was the best wine. And the host of ceremonies then, without even knowing, goes to the bridegroom and says, you have selected the best wine for last. And so this this bridegroom who is on the verge of embarrassment is now being told that not only is the party going to last, but it's the best of the best of the best, and he's getting all the credit for it. And I can only imagine in the cinematic version of this story that what's happening as the bridegroom is sipping this wine and being congratulated for how wonderful it is that it would pan over to Jesus and he's just winking at Mary and saying, what is this to me? And so I think what we can see in the story is that there is a way in which we see what happens when Jesus comes to usher in a new era. What Jesus' kingdom is all about. This distinction between ritualistic purity, this endless striving by one's own prayers, by one's own actions repeatedly over and over, this dipping into water over and over. It's really a purity test, right? If you can pass the purity test, then you will be right with God And Jesus comes and he points right to those same jars and he says, no. I'm going to fill them up with my grace. I'm going to come in a new way that the bridegroom discovers first. Just total, utter grace without even taking any of the credit, working behind the scenes, just him and his servants, he's taking a total disaster and making a better party than any of us have ever been to. Because Jesus knows that one of our tendencies over time is to create purity tests, to create ins and outs, to say clean and unclean, to say this is the right answer to everything and this is the wrong answer to everything. This is called dualistic black and white type of thinking. But Jesus knows that what's truly in the human condition is something more deep, something more true, that there are so many more colors than black and white, that there are all kinds of shades of gray and reasons for why people do what they do. 
And he knows that no matter how many times we think we got it all right, that there are ways in which we still got much to learn. And so he says, there's a way I'm making possible for you to be together at the party. And it's not through ritualistic purity tests. It's through my grace. Through nothing of your own effort, but only through my grace. And not only that, you become pure and invited to the party if you're just merely willing to accept this grace. And I think the world again today, we again today could just pause for a moment and say, you know what, the way we get to be together is because of this grace. The way that the human party gets to go on is by us giving and receiving this grace. And if we do, if we learn how to be in this way, if we learn how to extend this grace to each other, what we're promised here is that it's a sign of the glory of Jesus Christ. The glory, the beauty of who Jesus is, is that it's, it's revealed in this type, type of way, of the giving and receiving of grace that gives us one big party to be a part of. And in case you're wondering, 150 gallons of water turned to wine would make about 800 bottles of wine, just to get really practical about that. That's a lot of wine in the story, so we need to think about the scale. And I think that this should also remind us of one of the next signs that we see in John's Gospel. Little picnic out on a hillside, not much food around, but a whole lot of people. And it says that on that day, Jesus' miracle was to provide bread for 5,000 people. And then it's recorded that there were also 12 basketfuls left over. This is a way of speaking of the abundance, the abundance at the party that Jesus is able to provide. And it should remind us, it should point to, this is, these are signs pointing to what's our future reality, which Isaiah describes for us in chapter 25, verse 6 through 8. He says, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a rich feast for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And so all that embarrassment means nothing to Jesus, who is the God of grace. And so we, we might say, well, what does this all mean for us right now? All this talk of a great banquet in the future. 
Well, we might think of whatever it is, whatever it is, if it's the church, uh, if it's uh, something going on with you socially, relationally, the ways in which you have not acted out of your best self, and you might think of that, and you might sometimes, if, if you're like me, you might just kick yourself when no one's watching, right, and say, man, I could have done that better, should have said this, should have said that. And we can rehearse in our minds all the ways we didn't do it right or get it right. Like the prodigal son who's on his way home. And yet, while we're doing that, Mary and Jesus are at table 11 in the wedding party. And Mary's saying, Jesus, it's time to get to work. I love how N.T. Wright puts it. He says this in a wedding that he performed. He said, And it's all to rescue this poor couple from social embarrassment. An embarrassment which reflects the blushing of Adam and Eve hiding from God in the garden. A couple gone wrong. A fault symbolized by wrong eating now being put right by a, a, a redemption symbolized by right drinking. Jesus' changing of water into wine is designed to say, not just to this couple whose day was about to be ruined, but to the wider world, to you and to me, to the whole of creation, that it's all right. It's going to be okay. And since all of us need to hear that word quite often, not least within our homes and our marriages, We need to turn this story itself into a good, strong drink and inhale its bouquet, roll it around in our mouth, savor its aftertaste, the multiple resonances of good news, of gospel, of glory, the glory of God in the face of a surprised and relieved husband and wife. So if you're lost in your commitments, lost in your relationships, I pray that the glory of God may be revealed in you and that the sign of this miracle at the wedding in Cana leaves you in the ground of your being with this knowledge that it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. No matter what happens because of Jesus, it's all going to be okay. So may we be totally surprised at the grace of God again this morning. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are truly this good, that you can take our offerings and you can do something so beautiful And so I just pray that you would bless all of us, Lord, with an extra dose of your grace this morning. And may it heal us, may it restore us, may it revive us, and may it move us into courageous risk to just simply go out and say, I may be embarrassed, but if I'm with you, I know it will all be okay. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.